0: Ben Pring is the director of Cognizant Center for the Future of Work. In 2018, he was a Bilderberg meeting participant, and in 2020, he was named one of the world's top management thinkers by Thinkers50. He has co-authored Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and future, what to do when machines do everything, and
1: Code Halos.
2: Ben Pring, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet Podcast.
1: Hi, Mia. Great to be with you.
2: So you've really done a lot of work on cloud computing and, you know, machines, the future of work. Uh, you have recently published the book, Monster, uh, that gets to the heart of these uh, confusing questions, but ones that we have to face, uh, I believe, just to give uh, readers um, a taste of, of your book, you're, you're going to read from the beginning or?
1: Sure. Well, no, thank you. Mira. No, I thought I'd read a little, um, yeah, this is the book. It's called Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our lives, jobs, and future. <laughs> um, I've been writing about technology, uh, consulting about t- technology for a long time, 35 years or so. And this this book is really kind of, um, in a way, a bit of a time out, saying, you know, what's happening with tech? Where are we? Because elements of tech, which are at the heart of everything now, they seem to be kind of going off the rails a little bit. And We wanted to take a moment to step back, look at the big picture, look at the small picture of what's going on and provide some thoughts, advice, as you said, some hope, some positivity about how we can keep um, tech in a good place. So I thought I'd read um, a little section in the middle of the book actually, rather than the intro, um, which is slightly different from the rest of the book because it's written in the form of the uh, outline of a movie or a play. <laughs> um, and it's called Sunflower. It's called um, Sunflower Where Tech Meets Capital. And it's a, it's really in the structure of a three-act play or a three-act movie. It'll just take a couple of minutes. So I'll read it to you and um, maybe it'll uh, make people uh, pause and think and maybe laugh in spots as well. It's a kind of Roman a clef, if you know that phrase. So I won't I won't uh, give any clues away, but maybe people will figure out as they're listening. Um, you know, perhaps who we're who we're talking about here. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yes, yeah, sunflower. When tech meets capital, Act One: A youngish person sits in a garage slash dorm room slash Starbucks and comes up with a cool idea. Said youngish person writes some code, finds some funding, hires a small team and sets out their shingle. Through completely mysterious and unpredictable set of circumstances, said youngish person uh, starts to get traction. His company, let's call it Sunflower, uh, begins to uh, uh, get notice. Uh, Sunflower's funders arrange the next stage of funding, bringing in other investors, typically large institutions. Articles start appearing about the next great thing in tech, a small, stealthy startup called Sunflower. Sunflower's traction goes through the roof. Said youngish person appears on the cover of Wired, then in articles in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times. The investors invite said youngish person to a long weekend of next steps brainstorming at the uh, Rosewood Bermuda. Bring a friend, they say. Hell, bring a few friends or we'll find some for you. On the third day of spitballing, after the cruise on the 100-foot yacht, the dinner with Michael Douglas, the full treatment at the sense spa, the investors lay it all out. You've hit the payload. You could be the next Zuck, the next Steve. We're gonna make you a gazillionaire. Gazillionarization begins. The process is simple. Harvest profile data from the usage of sunflower and sell ads against those profiles. Gazillions flow. Said youngish person becomes unimaginably wealthy. The investors get wealthier yet. Another great American success story. Act three. Said youngish person is still young, but not quite so young. Sunflower is the S in fangs. Said youngish person spends $7 million a year on personal protection. Politicians in Europe and the US demand said young person answer questions about how sunflower is destroying democracy. Sunflower has more lobbyists in Washington, London and Brussels than any other company. Quarterly numbers disappoint. Investors plead, you're spending too much time on externalities, said young person, insulated by his gazillions and his dual class voting system stares out the window and wonders, when did this all stop being fun? Algorithms are tweet favor political ranting. Rant well and your post is placed in in front of other ranters. Ad ad rates for HRS, high rant scores, posts are increased 33%, further gazillions flow. Said young person signs the giving pledge. Said young person creates a space exploration company. At the next seed angel stage one, two, and three investors holiday at the Rosewood Bermuda, said young person doesn't show. Said young person drives cross country to their parents' house, thinking all the way that sunflower is about fun and joy and lightness and brightness. It's meant to be beautiful, something to make your day better, not worse. How did it become a force of darkness and misery? How did I become the scapegoat for all the problems in the world? Why is fake news my problem? Why do I have to make all the crazy people sane? How can I know everything and everyone advertising on the site, whether they're real or not, honest or not? How can I adjudicate arguments between people? Sunflower's a platform. What people do there isn't my problem. Is at and responsible for the nonsense people say on a phone call? HRS posts do even better than anticipated. Ad rates are increased a further 15% the investors extend their rosewood vacation and decide to go straight to Davos. Said person, really not young at all anymore, gives, the, uh, gives Davos a miss, stays home, and posts a picture of their new baby on sunflower and a picture of the groundbreaking ceremony of their house in Hawaii. The end.
2: Oh, well, I love that you really, as you say, it's Romana Clay, we could think of many, or maybe it's a composite figure. And I'm sure, you know, there are many incarnations that we will see now in the future. But it's great to see that in cinematic terms, because I think that some of these mysterious technological apps, AI, again, a a big mystery. We need to, we need stories to make sense of it. So we need books uh, like Monster that helps us, you know, just conceptualize it. Uh, It's funny because before uh, this interview, I was thinking a lot, of course, about AI. I was thinking about Blade Runner, which seems almost quaint now, a lot of those things. But I remember the test, which is a little it's not a turing test but it's a test to identify the cyborgs if you recall the beginning of that what's lacking in ai is like a human element and and we you can't you can't configure imagination but we'll go more in depth about this but um i just remember the cyborg being identified by uh, a story was told to it and i think the word tortoise was mentioned in it and it just You know, it can figure (laughs) out a lot of problems, but if if it isn't given the information, it just went ballistic. So you
1: you might know that's exactly right. You might know the Ian McEwan book, Machines Like Us, if if people have read that. I mean, he uses a very clever um, twist on that sort of Turing test to to, to try and uh, throw the machine, if you like, confuse the machine. And it's to tell the machine to lie. And of course, one of the underlying Asimov rules of robotics is the the machine can't lie. So in doing that juxtaposition of telling it to lie, it completely screws up its logic. And and I think those sort of tests, those limits, if you like, uh, they're the way we're gonna continue to try and um, understand what's going on, to try and differentiate between our humanity, our soul, our creativity, what we're imbued with, what we develop ourselves and what then we can imbue into these machines, into software, into code. And the point, really, of that little story, as you say, written in a sort of cinematic way, is to, is to make it a sort of very human thing. I mean, a lot of people look at what's going on in tech, in big business, in AI, and they forget that at the heart of all of this are stories about individuals. They're, they're stories about people. And because it's happening to us in real time, we're so close to it, and so much of it is obscured, you know, via PR agents and, uh, and uh, the TV news and their agenda. It's hard to realize that at the heart of these stories is are just typically young people who are kind of making things up as they go along. And they don't understand themselves fully what's going on. Nobody does. This is too big for any one individual to control in some sort of evil um, Illuminati way. Uh, so that was really the idea—that just to tell the story of what's gone on in the last 15 years in the in in the form of a movie, so people could kind of um, get past that uh, that screen, that that haze, if you like, that a lot of people confusion, a lot of people have about what's going on, and see this this very human story at the heart of it.
2: It's interesting, yes. And as you point out, they are young people who have certain skills, but. Uh, young people have a uh, intelligence and imagination but of course you know wisdom does come with making mistakes and experience and as you say how Mm -hmm. do you program that wisdom in is if one has not yet had the experience to do that Mm -hmm. and and I was thinking about it I had a conversation about in terms of AI how do we impart our human values or what gives life meaning. And someone said to me, oh, that's stupid, because they're they're not thinking about that." Well, it's a stupid, simple question. But if we don't ask it, and if those if what we value is not what the machine learning system values, if they have values, other than I don't know what it would be just to win or to just keep on going, uh, Mm -hmm. then we're going to encounter massive problems.
1: Yeah, no. I think again, if you're if you're um, a critic, uh, or if you want to critique uh, Silicon Valley and tech of the last twenty years, particularly, I mean, I think that is a very valid. Uh, the core of a very valid critique is that this is typically very young people. Um, there's a f- phrase in Silicon Valley they use: "single-purpose engine." You're a single-purpose engine. You all you do is one thing. You write code. Um, and they don't come as well-rounded um, you know human beings who've, as you say, got wisdom and experience and knowledge and um, a capacity to think broadly. They're single purpose engines doing one thing in extraordinary ways. and And they've been encouraged to do that by the ecosystem around them, by the funding that's been pumped into them by people whose whose only motivation is simply to make more money. Um, and you can see the results of that. You can see the results of that in the world as this technology has you know, grown, grown from a sort of little acorn now to being the biggest sequoia in the forest. And it's, it's, it's you know shading every other tree. It's taking all the light. It's taking all the energy from the forest. And it's distorting so much in the world. Um, now, I love technology. I've always been in tech. I, I think tech is ultimately a force for good. And I think ultimately you know, there is a good news story, we'll work our way through this problem as we've worked our way through all sorts of problems through history, but, but um, there's still a lot of people who are enthralled to technology, and, and certainly the sort of environment, the, the regulatory environment of the last 20 years has been, we don't really know what these young kids are doing, it's kind of interesting, we should just let them get on with it, and again, there was logic to doing that 20, 30 years ago, but there's less logic to that now. But, of course, grappling with what's going on, to your point, ensuring that bias isn't coded into algorithms and, and all sorts of um, broadly deleterious things for society don't occur, that's, that's going to be the work of the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, and it's going to take more than just the techies to figure this out. We're all going to have to figure this out to build and to you know, develop and maintain and extend the society that we want to live in.
2: I'm glad that you mentioned, I want to get to this later about the positive uses or possible usage of AI. When you mentioned sequoias, I'm just thinking, why aren't we or perhaps there are programs in place that I don't know yet about. Why aren't we using AI uh, about, you know, capturing carbon or, you know, restoring our ecosystem or forest fires. I, and that's one thing we can get to that. I just want to go into, into your book and you identify as one of the most important issues of our times of have we, uh questions of our times have we inadvertently built some kind of technology monster that is attacking our society our economy and even our individual psychology and if so what we should do about it
1: that's that's the question du jour isn't it in a way that's the that's the question this tech that we're talking about that's become so powerful is it beginning to harm us individually collectively societally and I think if you're paying attention, if you're looking at the sort of lead indicators of this, things as they come onto the radar, you can see more and more evidence that there's some truth to that. Um, just in the last few days, people may, may have seen um, stories about Instagram and, um, you know, being very, very negative for young girls, uh, issues of uh, body dysmorphia and people staring, taking selfies the whole time You're thinking, I'm not as pretty as the next girl. Uh, you know, having really, really profound psychological impacts on immature people. Uh, that's just one example. Um, so there's more and more examples of that where, yeah, I think this technology which has barged its way into the middle of everything, Uh, and we as I say we've all been enthralled to it we we all love our phones (laughs) Uh, you know I think we've got to now uh, step back and say well what's the good and what's the bad and if there is bad if we can acknowledge there are negative things in this discussion what should we do about it one sort of metaphor I we use in the book and I I think you know simplifies a, a, a complicated issue is that if you look at a picture um, of a a high street or a main street in the in the developed world uh, of about 1930 if you look at a picture of Paris in 1930 or London in 1930 or New York in 1930 or even just you know small town around that period you'll see lots of cars Because cars have been around for, you know, 30, 40 years by that time, and they're beginning to sort of, you know, become more and more popular, more and more people have got cars. But if you look closely at that picture of that main street, that high street, what you won't see is any road markings, any traffic lights, any stop signs, any roundabouts, any traffic bollards, any islands to help people cross the road look at another picture of the same street 30 years later and all those things are suddenly there. All of that infrastructure of safety is suddenly around the car on the high street, on the road to keep drivers and to keep pedestrians safe. So if you think about that image and that metaphor and that historical development, we've had 30 years or so of laying the information superhighway literally the road of tech in the future and if you look at that road today there's lots of phones lots of computers but there's none of that architecture of safety in the way that we use the internet the way we use apps the way we use these social media systems i think that's what we're going to see in the next 10 20 years putting in place the rules of the road the new rules of the road, so we can use these systems, these apps, these technologies in a safe way. And we can deal with that young girl who feels suicidal because she's on her phone, staring at her phone the whole time, looking at all these sexy, fantastic Hollywood stars and thinking, I don't measure up, I'm not worthy, I should just kill myself. Um, So we can stop problems like that. And and so I think that's, uh, again, gives certainly me hope that we can do that, we can put in place the rules of the road. We're not helpless. We're not, you know, we don't lack agency here individually, politically, societally. Where people of goodwill have got to step forward and 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 make sure that we do, uh, you know, take these positive steps forward, so we do continue to be in a good place.
2: It's interesting you mentioned that thirty years because I recall. Uh, yeah, 30 years later then you see the regulations in place. I recall that the lobbyists for automobile association or automobile companies, uh, 30 years they held back legislation of yeah. implementing yeah. Uh, safety belts.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly right, they, they didn't want um, seat belts, they didn't want airbags because that all added cost to the, to the car and so it made, you know, they thought it was going to prohibit, it was going to slow down the market but in fact the inverse happened. The same's happened in most big industries, Um, you know, cigarettes, it's happening in oil at the moment in the whole transition into the next wave of of energy. Um, So it's a very very common repeatable pattern when you put it in that broader context. And tech is sort of at the early stages of that at the moment, they've tapped into this gold mine, this gusher of gazillions as I put it in that, that story. And, of course, they want to keep that gravy train going. It's completely understandable. Their motivations, again, you know, actors talk about what's my motivation in a movie or a theater, in a play. Their, their motivation in that story is just to keep this gravy train, gravy, uh, gravy train going. But, of course, the broader ecosystem, uh, the broader picture, uh, where agitators come in, politicians come in, um, people on the other side of the equation come in and say, "Look, we do need seat belts. We do need airbags. We do need warnings that cigarettes ruin your health. We do need to think about green energy. We do need to think about that 13-year-old girl." Um, again, it's a natural process, but it's very difficult and painful, kind of when you're in the process, in, in, in the middle of that process.
0: Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to take it to one of those potentially maybe, you know, a, a car and unregulated potential danger of today, which I know you mentioned in an interview for your book, launcher, which is you you talk about it as one of the premier threats of the internet right now, which is deepfakes. Um, mm-hmm. And so my question is, you know, as of now, we've certainly seen a lot of really good deepfakes, but it doesn't seem like we've had an issue yet where, you know, there's this deepfake that's believed for a long-term amount of time, and there's these massive negative ramifications of it. So my question is, is this because deepfakes just aren't, they're still a little bit in that uncanny valley or is does the age of the internet allow us to, you know, disseminate a deepfake and say, no, this is not real faster than it can really take over?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it was, it, this is still very new technology in a way. It's been just sort of developing the last three, four, five years. Um I think we haven't seen some evil or, you know, uh, bad actor try to do what you're imagining is going to happen yet, but I'm probably gonna say to you that it's going to happen one day soon. And it might not be a deep fake of uh, Joe Biden saying, let's let's begin bombing China right now, But it might be a deep fake of your boss uh, sending you a little FaceTime video message. Can you, um, route that money to this new routing number. So it's going to be something lower level, kind of lower order. But yeah. I, I, think we're, I think we're going to see things like that. Now, of course, again, in the yin and yang of this, the black hats versus the white hats, there's a lot of work going on to put in place kind of watermarks, un- un- unhackable watermarks. Um, so you're going to have in the next generation of DRM, digital rights management, abilities to try and, um, you know, be able to delineate between a deep fake and a real thing. But yeah, it's extraordinary. And it's sort of funny at the moment when you see the the Tom Cruise ones or the Steve Buscemi ones. But yeah, I, I, I imagine we're going to see something a little bit more uh, nefarious than that probably sometime soon.
0: Yeah. And I, I know California has actually passed a law that says non-satirical deepfakes are illegal. I was wondering if you had any other ideas, because I think what you're saying is correct that the threat of deep is these more short-term things that you know could happen overnight and potentially mm-hmm. trick someone trick a few people is there I know you mentioned the watermark is there really any other way that we could be trying to address this proactively
1: yeah there's the New York Times are involved in the consortia with Adobe. that's one of the big ones that uh, is getting some traction at the moment but I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in this in, in the next few years again because it's sort of been seen as somewhat trivial and funny so far I don't think there's been a huge amount of uh, you know effort by that many people to focus on it but um I I think in a way it's kind of good that it's become a, a high profile thing before anything particularly bad happens imagine if this had been like um if you know the famous story of H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, uh, story of "The War of the World," and um, um, uh, gosh, my mind, Citizen Kane guy, um, Orson Welles. M- maybe you know that story. Do you a- know that story? F- Is it
2: F for fake?
1: Well, and the, well, Orson Welles did a radio play version.
2: Oh, of the War radio of the
1: World. The War of the Worlds. I think in about 1935 when radio was, you know, the predominant distribution technology, entertainment technology, and people thought that was real. And people <laughs> ran out of the streets. It's the end of the world. The Martians are coming. I mean, you can Im- imagine a modern version of that now. Uh, Deep fakes, you know, circulating on the internet of, uh, of aliens coming. You can imagine the panic. Everybody's on a hair trigger nowadays for news through twitter but yeah, i mean that would be crazy so yeah but 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 i i, I we only float this idea we're not suggesting this, this is going to happen it's certainly a possibility that it might happen
2: yeah exactly and you can have catastrophic things if it's not a war it's you know destabilization of markets you know russia and banks or these kind of things yeah.
1: no, exactly, yeah.
2: i guess what i'm also concerned of um i can see that happening so i and i think that it's correct that there are watermarks or the security measures put in place but on another level you talk about like micro injuries like the generally like a loss of innocence yeah. uh you know i'm just you know i know someone who's like approaching her 100th birthday and i think about the time span the, the innocence that one might have been able to experience the the non-surveillance society one one could have an intimate conversation and not fear that it would be repeated recorded and and yeah. so but just if you think about a child born today and what that span if he or she or they you know reach 100 what is their reality what is their sense of reality it's that innocence
1: no no that worries me a lot Mia and I I share that concern Um, I think children being born into into, as you say, this sort of surveillance-based economy, surveillance-based world, this screen-based world. Um, it's kind of heartbreaking. In fact, one of the stories uh, we tell in the, in the, the book is about um, a plane ride. I, I was on a few years ago from Boston to San Francisco, sort of six hours. And I'm sitting there, and, and the couple in front of me, you know, so I'm looking at my book or whatever, and after a while I began to notice this couple in front of me um, and there was a small baby, like 18 months old baby, standing in the sort of space um, between their, their seats and the next row of seats. And the, the couple, young couple in their 30s, were just looking at their phones. And I sort of began to watch it and it began to sort of become mesmerizing to watch it because this little baby uh, was sort of competing for attention with the phones, competing for the parents' attention with the phones, and the baby was losing. You know, the couple just stared at their phone for like six hours, and I thought, God, what's that going to do in a generation's time to the psychology of a, of a generation of children brought up looking at the back of phones? I mean, it's again, it sounds perhaps melodramatic to put it in that sense, but I think that's it's certainly unprecedented in in human history certainly new in human history and you, I, you can't think that's a good thing I, I can't see anybody can think that's a good thing um so no i mean uh, again my my philosophy on life is that there's a lot of people ask me are you are you a dystopian why is the book so dystopian then Uh, Or conversely, people have asked me, why are you you utopian, Ben? You're very positive about technology. And my answer to that has always been, you know, we know in history, we know 100 years ago that the world was full of awful things, uh, war, pestilence, uh, poverty, poverty. uh, the world, in a way, is, is a much better world today than perhaps that 100-year-old person was born into. But at the same time, 100 years ago, people fell in love, created great works of art, got drunk, had a good time. So the, the past was, was a utopia and a dystopia. If you think about the, the present, uh, the world is full of awful things, many of the things we're talking about. But people fall in love, create great art, Uh, get drunk and have a good time. So if that's logically true, that the past and the present was was full of good and bad, why do we think that the future is either going to be a utopia or a a dystopia? It's not. It's going to be full of good and bad. People are going to fall in love, get drunk, create great art, but we're going to be surveilled uh, and we're going to have all sorts of awful things like deep fakes, destabilizing the world. So I think if you think about it in that way, I, I've never been nostalgic for that hundred year old person's world that they were born into. I mean, read Thomas Hardy and, or Charles Dickens or uh, <laughs> uh, any of the great you know, writers of history and you can see how awful the past, you know, lots of things in the past were, uh, lots of things are awful today um, and lots of things will be awful in the future. But at the same time, technology, is creating in medicine, uh, in the distribution of education, in the distribution of art. Lots of incredible new possibilities and taking us to the sort of the next level of lots of things. And again, as a sort of rational human being, I think you're one's individual job, and then my corporate job, if you like, as a sort of thought leader for a large corporation is to kind of acknowledge the limitations, the downsides, the dark sides, to celebrate the positivity And then to try and sort of manage both of those, to to not get too carried away with the good, not too carried away and depressed but with the bad, but at the same time not uh, sort of argue that the bad doesn't exist and we should ignore that. Because again, I think that doesn't serve anybody, you know, ultimately particularly well.
2: Yes, of course. We have to address, as your book does so wonderfully, the good, the bad and the ugly and to work with it because AI and machine learning and all these different systems, they're not going away. So we have to uh, a- adapt to them and have them adapt to us. More importantly, yeah. we just understand who's who's leading, but with AI, yeah. it is a little bit, um, it can get a little out of control. We're particularly interested because um know we have also our one planet podcast that's devoted just to the environment so uh and how can it be harnessed for really you know solving our problems with Mm. global warming forest fires i mean i would it's heartbreaking to see those forest fires every year and maybe you're aware of some um, solutions that are in place or being uh, or in the planning uh they could address those problems that we cannot do at uh, address at a greater speed.
1: Yeah, well, no, I think that's exactly right. I think these technologies, you know, um, what people call the internet of things, placing sensors on inanimate objects and in, in effect making them animate, making them smart, uh, deploying AI machine learning based systems to understand the, the huge quantities of data that we're gonna be able to harvest from, the, from those things. I mean, I, I think that does give one hope. I think that is exactly the way we're going to try and tackle a lot of these challenges. Now, the reality is we're at a very early stage of that. And there are just sort of fledgling efforts to deploy uh, this kind of leading edge tech into what we call the green rush. You know, this next sort of wave of opportunity, commercial opportunity to deal with these problems. But I think that's absolutely going to be the the way forward and there's going to be um huge potential progress made in that way um i have a friend who lives locally who um works in the marine biology uh world and he's very involved in using machine learning uh systems to analyze these huge huge data sets that's generated from sensors uh, in different parts of the ocean, um, looking at all sorts of things, uh, fish stock, plankton stock. Um, there's you know, huge amounts of detailed work going on. And so that's just one example that I'm familiar with, where that data set is far too large for any individual, or even any kind of uh, software system from five years ago, to be able to understand, to look at what is the, the signal in that noise, if you like. Um, but he's beginning to get interesting, you know, uh, data sets, interesting results coming out of that uh, that data, uh, giving him sort of insights as to new solutions, new new opportunities. So yeah, I, I think um, again, we we going back to your uh, you know, initial comment where you started me at, and, and in a way prompted by that that sort of uh, screenplay, if you like, in the book, we still a lot of people still tend to look at AI particularly in this sort of cinematic movie-based way. It is, you know, Blade Runner, it is Her, it is, uh, you know, uh, The Terminator, all all movies that we've seen through history. But the reality is, it's just ultimately when you look at the reality of what what this technology is, it's just very clever software. Uh, It's no more, you know, threatening than that. It's just very clever software. Uh, that can begin to do things that uh, five, 10 years ago would have required a human to program that piece of code. The code can just sort of self-generate now. So it's not the Terminator. It's just the next generation of smart software. And everybody alive today using, you know, Word or using Zoom or using their phone is benefiting from software, you know, and hardware, but software mainly that's got smarter and smarter it's just the next level of that. It's not that kind of Hollywood version that we have in, you know, in our minds from uh, Saturday Night Movies.
2: Yes, I mean, some people argue that we're a kind of software, and I guess in our DNA, and we're yeah. self-learning. Um, but I think you know, sometimes it's those empty spaces, and you know, there is intelligence and wisdom and slowness as well. And I think that's what's frightening when we th- consider machines that don't seem to exhaust.
1: Well know. I I, th- I I again personally I completely agree with you. I wrote a piece a few years ago called the the vacuum the void and the deep dark truthful mirror. And it was all about this idea that in a way to, to be creative to create you have to have a vacuum. You have to have a blank uh, you know t- uh, r- Rosa tabler tabla rosa a blank piece of paper to be to fill. I, I, the the, pe- the paper I wrote was prompted. I went. Um, I was in Jamaica on holiday <laughs> a few years ago, and uh, as a treat one evening we went to Goldeneye, which is a hotel now, but it was the estate of Ian Fleming, where he wrote the James Bond stories, the the books that uh, then led to the movies and it was very interesting uh, his sort of original his writing room is preserved as it was this is all in those late 40s 50s when he and 60s when he was there and on the art on the wall there was a newspaper cutting of an article an interview with ian fleming where he talked about the fact that Every winter, he left London and went to Jamaica back in the 40s, 50s, very underdeveloped, very sort of remote, very quiet. And the reason he went there was to get away from all the parties and everything happening in London, so he had a vacuum in which he could write. And it really struck me that that, in a way, that vacuum is disappearing for a lot of people nowadays because of access to, to phone, to computer, to television. I look at my kids as they grew up, they really ha- hadn't hardly had any vacuum at all. They were never bored. There was always something to do. When I was a kid, I was bored all the time. Uh, there was a vacuum all the time, and into that vacuum I, I sort of created, had to generate my own you know, thing, interesting things to do, music, art, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I worry, like you, that that vacuum is disappearing because in a way nowadays the vacuum has turned into a void people when they don't have their phone are scared and they don't want to look in the mirror they don't want to see uh, what's becoming of them they, they they don't they don't want that sort of truthful honest relationship with the vacuum in which they can explore their own creativity there's always a, you know, there's always a TikTok to look at. There's always a, a movie on Netflix to look at. And and I, again I you you prompted that thought from what you said. I, I share that thought. I'm, I'm worried about um, the lack of that vacuum. And whilst we seem to be in the midst of a kind of creativity explosion, certainly in television, I wonder in another 10, 15, 20 years whether you know, a generation growing up without that vacuum, how creative they're going to be, frankly.
0: Hello, my name is Jansen Beyer. I'm a senior at the George Washington University and the associate interview producer on this episode of the One Planet podcast. You just listened to Ben Pring discuss a problem that I've certainly experienced, which is that due to the internet, streaming services, YouTube, social media, There is always something to do, and as Ben alludes to, this creates a lack of a void that many have credited for spurts of creativity. The act of being bored often leads to the best ideas. I think it's the reason why so many people find good ideas in the shower, or while driving to work, or completing a mundane task. But social media, YouTube, and the instant gratification that is the internet is not going away. So what are we supposed to do? Let creativity die? I offer another position. Yes, TikTok turns potential hours of creativity into hours of scrolling, but think about the thousands of people becoming quasi filmmakers thanks to TikTok. Yes, YouTube offers an infinite amount of curated video content just two clicks away, but it's also the reason why your five-year-old niece seems like a scientist when she talks about her favorite animal, the jellyfish, or why your little brother can play the Moana soundtrack on piano well never have taken a piano lesson. The internet destroys the void that has led us to creativity, but it also puts the tools to create and the inspiration to create constantly around us. Just as the internet makes us more connected than ever, but simultaneously more disconnected than ever, the internet is making us more creative than ever, but in new ways. Ask a class of children how many want to be YouTubers when they grow up. There be more that wanna be YouTubers today than kids that wanted to be filmmakers 20 years ago. Is that good or bad? I don't really know, but I know it's inspiring kids at least to be creative. So knowing this, how do we move forward in a manner that embraces the tools for creativity the internet has given us, while not falling to its pitfalls? Returning to Ben's analogy of cars before safety regulation, how do we regulate the internet should we regulate the internet? What does that even look like? China recently expanded a law limiting the weekly hours kids could spend playing video games. Is that the route we need to take? I think Apple making screen time statistics and app usage timers readily available is a step in the right direction, but beyond that, I'm not too sure. What I do know is that the internet is not stifling creativity in its entirety. Because of the internet, it is now commonplace to respond to the question, what do you do for work, with, well, I'm, I'm a creative. So how do we push the internet to serve us? How do we regulate the internet to incentivize the void? And how do we use internet as a tool for creativity rather than a suppressant of it? These are the questions I leave you with as we return back to Mia Funk's interview of Ben Pring.
1: the white collar bourgeois uh, suburb city-based work model sort of developed as a consequence of the development of the trains, Uh, the metropolitan line in London, the first sort of uh, train uh, like subway out to the suburbs. And and in fact, the history of the development of the suburbs is really the history of the development of of the modern office. Um, There's been some very interesting books written about that. Um, And so that that developed over 120 years quite organically, quite gradually, but we never really thought about some of these fundamental uh, sort of strategic aspects of it. And now we have an opportunity to do that. Um, what, What is the office for? What should we do when we're physically together? How should we think about the mix between not being together and being together how should we think about that differential between introverts and extroverts and the sort of the, the the model i've come up with and it seems to resonate with people is i make a distinction between what i call heads down work and heads up work and heads down is like typing coding doing your email, doing your expenses, whatever it is when you're looking down at the computer. I think what this moment has proven to everybody, I mean, you and I knew this 25, 30 years ago, a lot of people have now realized this, is that that work can be done anywhere. It can be done you know, in your bedroom, on the plane, in Starbucks, in the hotel, you know, in the bleacher seat, watching your kid play baseball. You know, you can do that pretty much anywhere. But conversely, the heads up work when we want to be together, when we want to be creative, collaboratively creative, when we want the energy of being together, seeing each other's whites of each other's eyes, that kind of uh, that human experience uh, that Zoom and WebEx and other kind of online platforms have been a poor substitute for being physically together when we do that type of work. So if that distinction makes sense, heads up, heads down, if you follow the logic of that, it means that when we're together in an office, we shouldn't be just there doing that. We should be up, you know, looking up at each other and being human and being collaborative and being creative, being together, doing that type of work. So I can imagine, and this is what I'm recommending to you know people, companies, clients that I work with, you remember when you used to walk around the city and you used to look for a uh, free Wi Fi uh, sticker in the corner of a window of a cafe, you wanted to get online. Let's reverse that. Let's make the office Wi Fi free. Let's go back to the office, but not be looking at our phones and our computers the whole time. Let's go back there to be human, to be creative, to collaborate. Yeah. I... So that might be, might, you might begin to see that model, that distinction. And in a way, this is the notion of hybrid work go, you know, be at home, be wherever you work best to do that, The heads down, but then go when you need to be with other people to do the heads up. So that might be a couple of days a week or a couple of days a month. And that might be the kind of hybrid model that we see emerge.
0: Yeah, I I think that hybrid model is definitely a good idea, especially for creativity. And, you know, during the pandemic, being at home, I definitely felt simultaneously a lack of creativity just being stuck inside but also it was a time to reflect but just going off on creativity I think there's this conception a false conception in my opinion that creativity only exists within the arts or music or writing or something but in reality creativity is everywhere it's the reason why anything gets done but I think specifically, there's a stigma that technology and computers that it's not creative. Could you just speak a little bit about how you approach creativity within technology?
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And that's very well put. There's huge amounts of creativity in non-creative businesses, uh, you know, creatives, writers who are sort of, you know, higher up the uh, the food chain, the sort of if you like, the aspirational food chain sort of tend to look down at everybody else and perpetuate that myth. This is C.P. Snow's Two Cultures, if you know this famous essay that he wrote in the 50s. He was an academic in Oxford um, about how it was regarded as very, very, um, uh, what's the phrase he used? It was unacceptable for a mathematician or a science not to know and to love and appreciate and understand Beethoven's fifth but it was completely acceptable for a musician or a writer not to have the first idea about calculus or DNA or any and so that that he was sort of talking about these two cultures. But of course there's huge creativity in the in the sciences in the non sort of arts-based business in fact i think a lot of this existential concern that the you know we've touched on in this conversation people worried about ai worried about machine learning worried about technology writ large comes from people on the arts wing on the creative wing of the spectrum who don't really understand technology at all, don't really have any, any sense of it whatsoever. I talk about what I call the, uh, the math gate at 14 years old. If you think about a 14 year old, there's a in their schooling career, there's a sort of gate that they go through. If you're good at math at 14, you can go through the math gate and then you can go into all sorts of fields which rests on a foundational comfort with, with math. So you can go into biology, you can go into med- medicine, you can go into you know, finance. If you're no good at math at 14 and you can't get through that math gate, you can't go into any of those industries. You have to go and be a journalist or a, uh, a musician or uh, something that doesn't rely on math. And if you look at the big picture, the industries that are math reliant are all typically going gangbusters at the moment. I, I, I say that if you're a kind of nerdy, techie, math, sciency type of person, this has never been a better time to be alive because these industries are now the industries of the future. We've, you could argue we've had uh, peak literature, we've had peak opera, we've had peak rock and roll, we've had peak cinema, but we haven't had peak tech or peak science, uh, we've still got huge mountains to climb in those disciplines. And I think the existential fear that uh, journalists and politicians who typically tend to be non-math people have is being expressed in this, oh my, my God, but you know, what are we gonna do? How am I gonna beat the robots? Cause I, I can't go that route. I can't compete with these people. Uh, and so you're right. So AI itself, the development of AI itself is probably the, the the fulcrum at the moment, the the, the crucible at the moment, of incredible uh, creativity. Um, uh, I know uh, people will know the name Demis Hassabis, who's the founder of Deep Mind, which is this company in London that Google acquired a few years ago, that were behind the. Um, uh, the AlphaGo uh, program with, with a machine playing um, a human player of the, the, the game Go. There's a Netflix a documentary about this that people may have seen. Dennis Hassabis is one of the most creative people I've ever met in my life. I think I've met um, half a dozen people who I would, I would certify as genius level people. One of them was Robin Williams. I used to run a comedy club in London in a previous life and he came to our club two nights and being in front of him, you know, 10 feet away on the stage, that was like Da Vinci level genius seeing him riff. Demis Hassabis I think is in the same uh, uh, class, just absolutely extraordinary intelligence, taking the world to a place it's never been before. That's creativity. It's not putting paint on on a canvas, or writing a new symphony. But to claim that isn't creativity, I mean, I think would be absurd. So no, I I completely agree with you, Jensen, that uh, there's a stigma, if you like, still uh, against technology, the sciences, math, somehow they're not as seemingly as um, prestigious as as being a a great novelist, a great film writer, a great pop star great opera singer, but uh, no, the world is now running <clears throat> increasingly on technology, on math. And I think we're gonna see incredible creativity. Uh, and we are at the moment.
2: You know, I think that, yes, it's true. And I think that uh, Jensen, who is studying journalism wanted to, to ask about the future of journalism and certainly <laughs> AI has been used there. But I did want to say, I do think that they go master one, a game, not all, but one uh, uh, One of the last games or the last game, I believe. Uh, so it's, it. <laughs> it, it we, the, the machines <laughs> won't yet replace all ingenuity. No, in fact,
1: there's a, there's, a, there's a really interesting story in that, Mia, that um, again, if people know this story, they'll n- know the story about Move 37. He said he wouldn't have made Move 37 if he hadn't have been playing the computer The the AI. The AI gave him an insight that he wouldn't have generated if he'd been playing another human, because the move was so unhuman-like. It was creative in that context. So it 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 acted as a catalyst for his creativity. And I think that's again to your point, in this relationship, this new DNA relationship between human intelligence and machine intelligence. Again, I think that's that's the route to the next generation the next level of creativity beyond you know anything we've seen before which is of course the definition of creativity so I, I think you're absolutely right
2: I think that it, it bears an I always am thinking about what is intelligence obviously I'm over here on the artistic side so I do think about um, but also I completely recognize the creativity in building what are architectures of technology you know it's just another kind of you know nano architecture or whatever so it's incredibly uh, creative I I don't I don't judge it as as being unrelated. Um, But I do ask myself, what is intelligence? And I feel like your level of imagination and whatever discipline it is, your ability to adapt to new circumstances and to deal with those under pressure. And the imagination, I feel, is so closely linked with intelligence. So if a machine doesn't have that... No,
1: um, I agree. And I think, again, I mean, this is a... a, uh, you know millennial old discussion isn't it what is intelligent the, the ancient Greeks you know thought about this a lot and people have thought about this throughout human history I, I mean my simple uh, thought just around about what you were saying is that there's not one sort of intelligence there's all sorts of different intelligence there's sporting intelligence Roger Federer is incredibly creative there's musical intelligence there's there's intelligence in all sorts of different ways. And, it, and that's the, the wonder and mystery of the human brain, um, uh, and which is still completely unknown to us. Um, so uh, I, I think, again, I, I'm, a, I'm by uh, Ben say, a, a, an artistic person myself. Um, I, I think the, the, the two highest forms of creativity, which I think is synonymous with intelligence, are, ah, as I mentioned, Robin Williams before earlier, the ability to tell a jo- joke. I think humor is an intelligence. Humor is a creativity. And people who are very, very funny, I think that's extraordinary creativity, particularly when you see the impulse, the spark of it happening, not when it's you know, repeated a 100 times on stage, but when that moment happens, that's a creative moment. And I think it's a moment of intelligence. And the other highest form of intelligence I think is the ability to write a melody. I think melody is a form of intelligence and the ability to create a melody uh, and I think those are kind of high watermarks of human intelligence but again that's probably reflects my (laughs) my prejudices and biases. I mean I think you could argue that Roger Federer is the most creative sports person in human history, you could could argue Demis is one of the most creative technological people people in human history, and there's all sorts of intelligence, and that's what, you know, viva la (laughs) difference, that's what makes it interesting, I guess.
2: It's interesting that you uh, cited uh, comedy and music uh, to, I mean, of sporting as well, uh, these they rely heavily on time I think and time is also a measure a mathematical measure and so I feel and I think a lot of people have taken it on board that uh, there are mathematical abilities that definitely occur in musicians and composers and so and I've interviewed so many different creative people and even you know writers uh, screenwriting and film editing that realize they've said oh my so much math involved in that, you know, yeah. to fit these huge yeah. stories into one hour, two yeah. hours or something.
1: No, I, I, amongst yeah. many of the tech, techie people I've worked my whole life, there's always been a very strong Venn diagram overlap between techie people, math type of people, and music. Um, uh, it's a very strong correlation and, you know, just look at Bach. Bach is the, the archetype, isn't he, of that mathematical expression. Um, and again, if you think about comedy, and you, you're absolutely right, you know, the secret of comedy is timing. That old joke. Um, I, I don't know whether people know Mark Maron, if you listen to Mark Maron's podcast, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, he's always talking about the beat. What's the beat, the rhythm, the timing of a joke? Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear him talk to other comedians and sort of inside baseball chat. But no, you're right. It's, uh, that's a, a mathematical expression in a human form. And, of course, ultimately, uh, as everything deconstructs into uh, physics and sub, some sub-particle physics, it's all mathematical equations, isn't it, ultimately? So it's logical that as those manifest and they build upon each other, there is a notion of math and, and and timing within that
0: yeah and i think that the notion of math and timing you know really everything can boil down to math it's definitely something that i think well i'm a i'm a journalism major and uh you know a while ago a little bit ago you were talking about how you know there's this fear that ai will take over and there's this expression i've heard in a few videos i've watched about you know the phrase called humans need not apply that with with ai eventually replacing you know in a legal setting you know looking it can look through thousands of case files the media in a medical setting it can cross-reference you know thousands of symptoms faster than a human brain ever could and you know there's ai tools that write journalism articles that write music so my question is do you think that these ais will really you know take these jobs over and you know i'm sure there'll be new jobs for still people that are writing but Do you think we'll see this foreshadowed idea of where robots are writing 60% of our articles or writing the the beats to our favorite pop tracks on the radio? Uh,
1: We wrote a book a few years ago, 2017, called What to Do When Machines Do Everything. And it was all really about this issue. And we went out and we interviewed um, some of the companies creating that uh, writing software. Uh, And even back then, uh, we, we, we cited cases of, uh, if you go on to ESPN and you look at sports stories, write-ups of a game on ESPN, that's very often being done by automated writing software. Um, five years later, if you're familiar with things like GPT-3, which is the next wave of very sophisticated software, that's writing not just a kind of sentence or a paragraph. You can basically just say to it, I want my end-month my end report with my sales figures, my um, forecast, some commentary around the clients I've, I've talked to, press the button, Bing, it just writes the whole report for you. So think where that's gonna go in the next few years. Now, <laughs> I was a journalist for about uh, 10 minutes, Jensen, a long time ago, before I came to my senses. Uh, my co-author, Paul Rorig he was a journalist for, he did a, a PhD in journalism. Uh, <laughs> My brother and my sister-in-law, uh, who are older than me, have made a, a, a living as journalists their whole life. So I have a lot of sympathy and uh, feeling for journalists. I don't think journalism is going to go away, uh, but I think it is It is a harbinger of a lot of changes you, we are going to see in which the route to security, the route to making a living as a journalist, is you need to keep on going up the ladder yourself because the lower lower rungs of the ladder are going to become automated. So it isn't going to be um, that your job, a journalist's job is to uh, to sit and write you know a hundred words or uh, a news and brief art- article um, uh, in the way perhaps journalists would have done before. Your job is to go out and get the story is to do the interview, is to track down in an investigative journalist way, um, something that nobody else has talked about because the, the, the rote elements of that role probably are, you are gonna rely more and more on, on, on a piece of software that can do that for you, particularly the elements that kind of uh, are by their very nature kind of routine and repeatable. Um, I think what's more broadly, and again, this is kind of more economic discussion really than uh, a technological discussion. What's happened in journalism is, is in a way, uh, it's a, I, I think it's a fascinating story because I, you know, I, I sort of feel it personally. I got, I got sort of caught up in this a little bit. I think so many people of my generation uh, uh, and and slightly beyond my generation. Saw all the president's men. Saw that movie and thought, "Wow, this is the greatest job in the world. Uh, being an investigative journalist, bringing the president down, bringing you know power to account. This is the greatest calling I, as a non-math person, could ever could ever achieve." And that movie came out in 1975, I think. If you track the the growth of the journalism industry. Uh, there's just an incredible explosion of the number of people working in journalism because of that movie. And what happened was just a a classic supply, demand imbalance. You have a huge uh, number of journalists graduating from journalism schools um, uh, working in journalism. And then this thing called the internet comes along. Journalism rests on advertising Um, revenues, advertising all mutates to the internet, and suddenly you've got this incredible imbalance. And even a few years ago in the UK, I'm more familiar with the the stats there than in the States. Um, But still, 20, 30, 40,000 journalists graduate from journalism school every year. I mean, that is absolutely mad um, uh, because there aren't 30 or 40 or 1,000, you know, 40,000 new journals and jobs being created every year. Um, so I don't think that, I don't think that the profession goes away and the need for the profession goes away. I think the whole notion of micro journalism, micro newspapers might, we might see a sort of a renaissance in very localized news. Uh, that might be one route forward um but the other route forward is to keep on really going up that kind of value chain as people like me talk about to do the higher value-added stories because yeah automated insights uh which is one of the big journalism writing uh software programs they are going to do more and more of that lower order order stuff so um you're going to have to run sort of harder than faster than you think to kind of uh to outpace this uh, this monster coming behind you.
2: <laughs> There's really uh, now a big push for the creative economy. And I know that that's something you've also been uh, and analyzing, not just with the future of work, but with the future of cities. And I was wondering, as you really analyze cities that you feel are... Um, you know, exciting or doing interesting things or showing the way forward, what were some of the qualities that they shared and, you know, how could we be learning from them?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, obviously, you know, Richard Florida is well known as writing about the creative classes and the impact that that has on cities. Um, and and really that has been the story of the sort of uh, gentrification of old established cities in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and then uh, how cities have changed. I mean, London, where I lived until I was in my mid thirties, I mean, now I've not lived there for almost 25 years. And when I go back there, it's extraordinary how it's changed from when I was there. Um, And part of the change in that story is because the areas that were hip and groovy, full of creatives, suddenly the creators can't afford to live there because the money people come and live in these places because they want some of that patina to rub off on them and so london has sort of priced out uh, the creatives in a way initially they went east they went from notting hill to shoreditch and the whole uh, sort of balance of power in this big city change in a very short period of time but now london is so expensive the bankers the financial people have gone into shoreditch that the, the creatives can't be in london at all so they're now in brighton or they're in uh, other parts of uh, of the uk the same's happened in in america the same's happening in new york now you think about what the lower east side was like 40 years ago in the sort of punk revolution and those cold you know water walk up lofts in soho which the talking heads were living in in 1975 they're now five million dollars or ten million dollars so the talking heads when they're 22 couldn't live there anymore and so they went to brooklyn and now they've gone to other parts of new york but now those places are too expensive so in a way this is the natural process (laughs) if you step back from it and we think in the work that we've done that these sort of overflow cities overflow places the next wave of of cities that at the moment still seem kind of crazy scuzzy not very attractive not very nice they're going to see the creatives come there because they want a cheap place where they can you know they can be creative so one of the places we've called out that's fitting this this pattern if you like uh, is Portland in Maine, not Oregon, but in Maine. Because, um, you know, people can't afford New York anymore. People can't even really afford Baltimore anymore. People can't afford Boston. But in Portland, Maine, there's all these beautiful old brick buildings uh, that haven't been gentrified, haven't been refurbished yet. And that's going to create this kind of cool urban environment we call this the the combination of bricks and clicks you know brick space and then doing click-based work you know creative work in in using technology they're going to be the sorts of places that are the places of the future because they have that combination of of affordable property kind of groovy vibe young people creating um you know creating the, the future that they want to see that they can't create anymore in in the big uh, cities like New York and London.
2: Oh definitely and it's so it's interesting to see that the you know it's sad when the creatives are priced out of an area but there are lots of places to go and as you say even you know creating a city that's a creative activity so it's exciting to see that happen um as you identified 25 21 cities around the world so i will direct people to to that report on the future of cities and and i guess you know in closing uh you know, you identify some of the most pressing issues of our time. And I was wondering, uh, we're thinking a lot also about the future and the kind of world we are leaving for the next generation. How do you prioritize some of the issues and systemic changes that you think needs our most urgent attention? And what What are some lessons that you've learned along the way that you think are important to to share with young people? Uh, What would you like them to know, preserve, and remember?
1: That's a lovely question, lovely way to uh, to frame it. Um, I think my sort of reaction to that, me and the way you frame that is, it's, um, as has always been the case through history, it's a, one toggles as an individual um, between the macro and the micro and the the macro systemic issues you touched on obviously you know probably most people have a pretty good sense of those climate uh wealth inequality um uh, geopolitical macro tensions in the world um we see monsieur Monsieur macron at the moment (laughs) upset with america and australia and britain um so those are very real issues and ultimately I'm a big fan of uh, of the famous book and movie Dr. Zhivago, uh, which if, if people know is set in the Russian Revolution and it's a story of how, um, you know, a nice person, nice people get sort of caught up in, in big macro ways that they can't control, nothing to do with them. And uh, I, I always think in a way that we as individuals, are just like little kind of ships on the sea little sailing ships on the sea we can't control the waves we can't con- control the tides and the weather um, so in a way i think it's it's wonderful that young people feel energized and motivated to agitate around some of these uh, systemic issues climate change quality of opportunities it's wonderful but at the same time i think one shouldn't overlook the micro Uh, elements in this the micro responsibility and
2: you've really given us a lot to think about so thank you benjamin pring and cognizant center for the future of work for your important insights into cloud computing machines ai our digital and working lives we all live on one planet we call home we appreciate your reflections on how we can harness the power of technology without sacrificing our values and what makes us human thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and one planet podcast
1: Thank you
0: so much. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Jansen Beyer with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Jansen Beyer. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Sully brown Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved with the One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.